Welcome to the Stratcom podcast series. I'm Ahmad Kablan. I'm a presenter at TRT World. I host a show called Double Check. Today we'll be talking about communication strategies in film and television. Joining me is Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, who's an associate professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And she currently teaches in the areas of political science, gender studies, and comments on a wide variety of topics, including gender, sexuality, politics, public policy, social media, pop culture, and technology. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. At Stratcom, we're talking about strategic communications. And when we look at pop culture, when we look at film and television, there are always in the reviews talk about how film and television sends us messages, sends messages to a larger audience. These messages could be political, could be ethical, uh, or could be about other issues. Can you open this up a little bit? They're really messaging. Yeah, it's a complicated issue because it assumes power on the part of the media. And it also assumes intentionality. And I think both of those concepts need to be unpacked. So if you look at the history of of media studies and studies about impact of the media, and I'm not going to give you a potted history, but, you know, in early studies on the media, we're looking at a kind or proposing a kind of hypodermic syringe model. You know, the idea was that if an audience watched something, it was enormously influential on them. Shortly thereafter, that theory theory was really debunked. It was really assumed that that kind of influence only works in totalitarian regimes where, you know, there's a very uh, strong control of the media, usually by the government. But when you start having audiences uh, consuming different sorts of media, you know, more than one type, the idea of any one type having disproportionate influence is weakened. And I think now if you flash forward hundreds of years, you know, we're getting so much media from so many different sources that the idea of one specific type of media or one film or one television show having a huge amount of influence on us, I think that's uh, a high level exaggeration. So firstly, I would say, and I'd put that idea to rest that I don't think the media has enormous influence on our ethics, our politics, et cetera, at least not singular items of media. Now, the other part is also assuming that, and this is something I often see in reviews and and, and cultural commentary, is somehow the idea of media makers, you know, content creators, imparting certain messages in the media. Now, that's often an interpretation from the audience or, or an interpretation from someone writing a commentary piece. But it's not necessarily the intention of the manufacturer. Most media that we consume is commercial in nature. It's made to make money. And therefore, I think we need to keep that firmly in mind. And this is something I've written a lot about. We tend to assume that it's there for, you know, social engineering purposes when primarily the film and television that most of us watch is actually there to make money, money for the studio that produced it. So one story that I was recently covering reporting was how Hollywood gets funded and sponsored uh, by the US military, by the Pentagon. And, you know, one of the 
revelations of that story was that in many of those movies produced in Hollywood, there was a lot of kind of, um, you know, tones that would support the US military. This element exists, right? Yeah, and I've certainly written about this myself. I mean, we know that after 9-11 that there were high-level meetings between studios and, and the White House to talk about uh, messaging, for example. Now, you know, if you look at a lot of the films made in the 1980s, you know, during the, the Reagan administration, um, many of which got funding from the government or at least funding from um, military arms of the government, they were very pro-America, patriotic, uh, high-level, uh, pro-military type narratives. Now, again, though, these are not, it's not common in the sense that, uh, you know, um, it's it's a certain genre that you see this um, imprint or, or footprint made, but also, again, for those individual items to hold huge amounts of power on an audience, that would be all the audience is able to consume. And that's just not the case. You know, you might watch Top Gun, you know, a 1980s pro-America, arguably right-wing ideological film that's, you know, um, very much in line with a lot of the government's values at the time, but also watch a whole lot of content that is highly critical of the United States and of the military and of uh, right-wing ideology. So that idea, those two things can exist in the same media scape and audience, audiences consume both. And the second you start to consume material that's, you know, not pro-government, you're neutralizing the impact of that one thing that did receive some Pentagon funding as an example. Just to just to clarify, so for example, I really enjoy watching the James Bond uh, movie franchise. Uh, so in when I'm watching a film, James Bond film, and I see maybe a Russian character as the villain, uh, this there's no political messaging here, right? This is about making money more so than you know bringing in the political message. Okay, so that that's a complicated question in the sense that if you watch that film as an audience member and feel that that one character speaks on behalf of all Russians, right, then that film has had an influence on you as an individual. And if you find that a pop culture trend at that moment in time was running an anti-Russian uh, narrative cumulatively, i.e. you're watching a lot of these representations, you could argue that, yes, then there's a cultural impact that audiences are getting a message that is anti-Russian, this isn't far-fetched. I mean, if you have a look at different points in history, Western media has picked certain villains uh, to crucify in film and television. You know, we've been through uh, periods in history where, for example, all of your uh, terrorists and enemies were from the Middle East, right? And at different junctures in history, Western media has pointed to different kinds of uh, ethnicities. We'll, we'll use that as an example right now as villains. And that, if it's done repeatedly, not just in one Bond film, but through a lot of media, there is the capacity for audiences to interpret that as not only a stereotype, but potentially telling some sort of truth. But I think audiences, particularly today, are more savvy than that. I don't think that we're so naive as an audience, and I doubt that you're so naive as an audience member, to watch a film that's got a Russian villain and think that that's anything more than one character 
in one film that has been vilifying in varying degrees Russians for decades because those films started to be made during the Cold War. And therefore, there's a template of following evil Russians within that story. Now, whether there's an actual agenda on the part of the filmmakers, there quite possibly is in the sense that, again, go back to the origins of the Bond characters. That's not, though, a government agenda so much as uh, doing, you know, quote unquote, justice to the books that the films are based on, or at least that the character is based on, and the, and honouring that legacy. And that legacy, particularly for Bond, is incredibly important. As you'd aware, every single year there's conversations, can we have a black Bond? Can we have a female Bond? And the reason that there's always resistance is because that particular character has a long legacy, and that legacy includes, for example, Russian villains. Okay. Uh, but just one thing you mentioned, uh, the idea of if this happens repetitively and continuously throughout various genre in film and television. So if one particular group is, say, vilified within various genres, various films, various TV shows, at that point, do you think it would become problematic because it's a, it would become um, psychologically uh, pushing forward a message at that point? Or do you think it's still... Uh, not going to have an impact on what society thinks about you know, the targeted or the vilified um, community? I think it has more impact than one film that has that message, right? If you say, you know, many films released in a year or many television shows released in a year or in a period of a few years, I think audiences do potentially have the capacity to uh, draw together some conclusions about, for example, a Russian agenda or a Chinese agenda, that the, the impact of that message is watered down because that's not all the audience is consuming, right? Those films, even if you just watch that Bond film or films of that genre and see constant portrayals of Russian villains or constant portrayals of Chinese villains, you're also watching other media. You're also watching news and hopefully you're also reading and I think that that's part of the beauty, if you like, of the mediascape today is that individual media items, even if they have similar messages, hold less weight for the audience because there is so many other places you can get a counter view to that message that's being put forward. Therefore, there's a balance for audiences. It's not a perfect balance. It doesn't mean everyone will, will leave having the same message but it does take away the power of the media in, in terms of a brainwashing impact. And speaking of, you know, beyond film and television, if we can just talk about it a little bit as well, get your opinion on it. When we, when we look at social media these days, uh, the influence of um, what's known as influencers on Instagram in particular, um, do you find that this genre of people who are known as influencers, they're having a larger impact on society these days than film and television. Do you think this is where it's kind of sliding in terms of, you know, pushing forward messaging, advertising, etc.? Look, the impact of influencers, I think, is disproportionately skewed to very young people. So if I talk, for example, people my own age or older, I'm 41 years old, I can't name you a huge number of online social media influencers, right? 
unless they've been parlayed into a career, let's say reality television, I don't really know these people. And partly that's because I'm not frequenting the social media scapes where these people are disproportionately influential. These, these influencers are targeting a much younger demographic. So I think we need to keep that in mind in terms of um, when we talk about influences, inf, uh, influences or the influence that they have, they don't influence everybody equally. That I am absolutely not saying that just because I'm not influenced doesn't mean they're not influential. We know, for example, that there were, uh, you know, enormous efforts that that TikTok influencers, as an example, had made, for example, to certain events during the course of the American presidential election in, um, when was it? God, it seems like a thousand years ago, 2020, right? We know that they did political stuff that was influential on their particular audience, but that's not an influence that is across the board for all demographics. I can name some influencers presuming that they've got a presence in other kinds of media that I watch. Then go up one more generation. Let's talk about my parents. They know none of these people, right? So we just need to keep in mind that this is not an across the board influence. It is influential for certain demographics who are using certain platforms, TikTok being an obvious example, but TikTok, the skew of the audience is very young. And uh, Lauren, can you just talk us through pop culture in general? I mean, how does something become popular all around the world? For example, this year we saw the TV series Squid Game uh, become a global phenomenon. You know, everyone was talking about it. And, you know, there was talk that it wasn't even an advertised show. So how, how do some things just pop up and everyone can somehow relate to it? How does the concept of pop culture work? So if I was able to answer that question, I'd probably have a license to print money because that's exactly what studios are trying to work out that formula. And this is something I've written about before in that sense of trying to capture lightning in a bottle. We had a film that worked in 1985. If we just remake that film, surely it will be successful. And invariably it's not successful, right? Sometimes there is just a convergence of elements that make for a successful moment. For example, why was Tiger King such a moment, you know, at the start of the pandemic? Why was everyone watching this ridiculous docuseries about some weird people who were raising or, or, or abusing animals, right? But there are a number of factors at that time that made Tiger King the perfect show for the moment. And one of those big factors was the early days of the pandemic when everything just seemed so weird anyway, that Tiger King was kind of the icing on this very weird cake. Now, I don't think, for example, flash forward even right now, there's a second series of Tiger King on Netflix. You hear nobody talking about it, mm -hmm. right? Because a year on, that moment is gone. Whatever it was that gripped the entire world to get interested in weird tiger farming people is gone. And what was replaced was let's use the example that you mentioned of Squid Game. Something happened that that game and probably the nature of, you know, the, uh, the dystopian nature, but also, you know, particularly in certain countries like the United States, there's perceptions, even if not necessarily reality, perceptions of an economic crisis, individuals feeling, you know, prices are going up, et cetera. Who knows? This is all pure speculation on my part. 
But whatever happened, that was the right show for that moment. Six months earlier, we probably wouldn't have wanted to watch it. So there is a number of factors. One of the big ones is simply serendipity. But there are some things we can point to. Now, two examples or two explanations, I think, that gave Squid Game a fighting chance is one being on Netflix. Now, Netflix and its with its global distribution completely changes the game in the sense that not only does it give you the benefit of being able to watch shows dubbed, so there's not that same foreign uh, barrier that once existed, but you're able to distribute content around the world in real time, which means that people in, let's say, Australia and Turkey, if it's on uh, Netflix in Turkey, etc., can all consume a show at the same time. Even if it's not, let's say, legal in your country, people are using VPNs to be able to access it. Not only are they accessing the show in real time, at the same time, they're participating in an online conversation about it, which creates this moment. So I think you've got Netflix being the distributor, you've got um, the ability for social media to connect people, to talk about it, you know, to feel like you're part of a cultural moment. I think also the Korean element has has some relevance here in the sense of if you think about the success of Parasite from a couple of years ago, winning the best, you know, winning uh, quite a number of awards during that Oscars year, there is a heightened interest in culture that's coming out of South Korea as well. So I think there's a number of different factors, but again, this is speculation. If I could tell you what is the formula <laughs> to make something a global juggernaut, I would be in a very different career than being an academic. So is is social media, do you consider social media part of pop culture as well? Yeah, this is interesting because definitions would say yes, others would say no. Uh, I would consider social media as part of, of the media scape and I guess it's part of the pop culture conversation. But because individuals are creators of social media in the sense that we're the generators of the content, I'm not sure every piece of social media becomes pop culture. And I know that sounds like a convoluted um, explanation, but there'll be some things that happen on social media that get a level of virality where it speaks across demographics and enters the mainstream in a way that a niche tweet that you or I sent won't have that cultural impact. And pop culture, for it to be popular, as pop culture dictates, you've got to have not necessarily the majority, but a lot of people recognising that thing. And I think most social media doesn't actually fit that bill, although the act of participating in social media, I think, is part of that um, broader pop culture consumption activity, much like the act of going to the cinema or the act of watching television as opposed to the content generated itself. And just finally, with we're talking about pop culture, we're talking about social media. When you look ahead, especially with the expansion of technology, how do you project things moving forward? Do you feel the concept of pop culture will remain you know, prevalent through media? Do you feel that social media will have a much more important role on society? Where do you see things going technologically and within these landscapes of media? I think we're still going to see and probably an expanded um, or we'll see an expansion of that kind of multi-tiered production. And by that, I'm thinking 
Um, you're still going to have your blockbuster films, right? Those ones that cost upwards of a hundred million US dollars to make and are expected to generate that kind of money at the box office. Those films will still be made. Those are still going to be the films that dominate the multiplexes at, you know, the cinemas. But I think because now you've trained audiences for two years to consume not only television, but film via streaming services, I think you're going to see a lot more of the films that aren't your blockbusters delivered to us through streaming services without the expectation of going to the cinema. So you're going to see, and it's all, this has absolutely already happened. I just think it will probably expand where films that are, you know, even if they're big films, but not necessarily special effects type films, you'll see them have dual releases, you know, at, at the cinema, but three days later on a streaming service. And part of the reason that has facilitated that dual, um, that ability to have films never even go to the cinema in the first place is because, for example, the Oscars are changing the rules that you can have an entrant in the Oscars and not have a film release, which was not the case prior to the pandemic. You had to have a cinema release to be eligible for entry into the Academy Awards. That's changed. So I think this is just a long-winded way to say I think that you're going to see more of that where you'll have uh, still you'll have your blockbusters, but you will see a lot more content that is quality delivered via streaming services almost exclusively. And what that does, though, is give a fighting chance to smaller productions. Squid Game being a very good example. This is a Hollywood money production, but because it's being delivered through the exact same channels as other kind of more expensive, glossy US productions, it has the capacity to compete for that kind of audience with the possibility of becoming that sort of global phenomena in the way Squid Game did that couldn't have been predicted before streaming services. Lauren Rose Warren, thank you so much for joining the Stratcom podcast. It was very informative. Thank you so much for having me.